never give up. I never give up. I never give up. Hi guys, welcome back to my Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host Stefan Neff. Today is another fantastic day for an interview because I've my guest today, David Creer, is a man who has truly, truly loved his drink. Uh, he's like me. We both were, we both got a lot out of it. Typically a rocket fuel, typically, yes, come on, give me the power. And you guys think, what the hell is he talking about? Well, <laughs> we're going to explore that today. Why so many entrepreneurs and so many people who who go out there to to make this world a better place and make them uh, make them leave a legacy while we fall foul to alcohol. So, David, welcome to my show. Thank you so much. It's uh, thrilling to be here. I'm really happy to be here today. When did your love affair start? When was the first time that you had a drink? Uh, the first drink was when my father gave me a little bit of champagne in a glass, uh, and I had a sip, and it was so awful, I spit it right back in the glass, <laughs> and my dad had to waste the whole glass. Uh, uh, I, was, uh, I was not popular. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> Unless you vomited into it, a good alcoholic father would have taken that. Ah, that's all right. Down he goes. <laughs> so, well, yeah, yeah, so for me, not... it's... No, my, my, so I was adopted at birth. Um, and uh, I don't believe that my uh, adoptive parents, who their mom and dad, yeah. um, uh, were or are alcoholics. Um, uh, they, okay. they did like to have, you know, dad was an entrepreneur. He took over my, the business his dad, my grandfather started. Um, and, you know, he came home from work and had a scotch and mom had a gin and tonic. And so, I had a saw a pattern of of daily drinking, mm. but they'd have one, maybe mm. two, mm. right? And then yeah, sometimes you know my aunts and uncles come from out of town and like there'd be a big booze up, right? Uh, so uh, and and booze was always around. Uh, so I I take I, I was really modeled the acceptance of all of that. Mm. Now um, four years ago, I decided to go look into my birth families. Wow. And I found both my birth mother and my birth father. Wow. And uh, my birth mother has definitely been an alcoholic pretty well her whole life. Um, my uh, maternal brother, Gary, died in 2015 before I had a chance to meet him of his alcoholism. Um, and my birth father is not an alcoholic, but his sister is. And he wonders about his dad because uh, he moved out when he was 18, so he didn't see his dad his dad by the way was an anesthetist um <laughs> coincidentally well, so, well, you are we are well we can talk about that we are probably yeah so round two yeah I, I don't i just remember like wanting to be part of the crowd in the summer mm -hmm. of like grade nine or so and you know offering someone you know to buy a beer for a dollar mm -hmm. you know this is back in like 1972 where a dollar mm -hmm. was was worth a lot of money. Um, and, you know, I probably had my first beers around then. And then in grade 10, uh, in, in where I grew up, high school was 10, 11, and 12. And I, I you know, really became involved in sports. Mm. Um, and it's starting with football in the fall and, you know, went to my first keg party and, mm. and uh, you know, really had some binge drinking experiences and was definitely to be part of the crowd. But, you know, my story of, of my relationship to alcohol is the progressive nature of the disease. 
like, yeah, I went to those parties and drank a lot. Um, but, you know, I didn't drink during the week and I didn't even necessarily drink every weekend until probably grade 12. Right. But, and again, it wasn't, it wasn't like it was at the end where I was isolating and drinking alone. It was more always with other people after, you know, a Friday night basketball game. Um, and, uh, you know, then I moved out of the home when I was 18, moved from the prairies to the West coast here, Vancouver, uh, BC, Canada, which is where I've lived for the last 40 plus years. And, um, you know, eventually went back to university, was part of the rugby team. So, you know, lot, lots of drinking. But again, I, I don't know the exact spot where I turned into a pickle, as we might say. Um, and uh, what I know is that when my wife got pregnant with her first child, I committed to her to stop drinking. And that lasted for maybe 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> so i i know then i was the pickle uh -huh. like i was definitely totally pickled um and what you know did what? the alcohol what did the alcohol give you what was it doing at that time were you already an entrepreneur yourself at that time? yes yeah i mean i i at 22 i joined a young software startup as the first employee after the founders okay and i was still i was still at university um and yeah. I think there's a number of things. I think part of it was just coping with the stress. Some of it was my whole, you know, media's depiction. My personal belief is you drink a lot of alcohol when you're successful. Who were like, your heroes at that time? Yeah, my former partner and I were in the market that we were in, in the computer market we were in. We were known on a first name basis. Oh, wonderful. Like, no, I've reflected, I mean, heroes. Who, uh, what kind of films did you watch? Who? Oh, um, I was at that time a big science fiction kind of fan, you know, lined up for the first Star Wars movies. Ah, good. Um, okay. okay. Yeah, so, so but they, James business... loved James Bond. Okay. Right? Well, yeah, got, okay. There you got go. got taken to Thunderball when I was like in grade four or five, even uh, though, uh, you know, uh, it shouldn't uh, have been because it was a <laughs> PG movie. Of course. Um, but uh, I love that whole secret agent. I mean, in grade seven, I was like with friends doing invisible ink and and going to the library and like getting yeah, books yeah, on how to yeah, do yeah. secret stuff. Yeah. So that whole hero genre, mm. invincible, like you know the James Bond mm. and James Bond drank the martini, like absolutely all of that stuff is definitely manifested in my belief systems. Absolutely. Right? And then and also my partner and I were like stars in our market. Like mm. we were the big shots and deservedly so like we, we earned that reputation. Um, so, but it, you know, it's then easy to build on that and think you deserve all the alcohol that you're oh, having. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And what was your favorite tipple? What did you drink? Uh, beer, beer, uh, yeah. beer, beer and wine. Uh, when I first got sober, the notion, I could sort of almost think about not having beer, almost. Mm. But the idea that I'd like be having meals without wine, like that was inconceivable <laughs> when I first got into <laughs> sobriety. <laughs> Including breakfast? Nope. No, no. I was, uh, I had, you know, I I, mo I pretty much had very strong rules. But, you know, the traditional progressive, you know, alcoholic, I've heard this story many times, <laughs> progressive uh, nature of the disease. It's uh, like I have all these lines I wouldn't cross. 
So <laughs> I never drink in the car. And then, you know, towards the last seven or eight years, somewhere I crossed that line. Then I'll never drink in the car while it's moving. You know, <laughs> yeah, then, I'll exactly. never, then I'll never have one, you know. Unfortunately, <laughs> I never did it with anyone else in the car ever. Uh, so I never crossed that line. Uh, um, and, you know, it was like, you know, you don't drink before five o'clock. And then it was four o'clock. And then, you know, by the end, it was like <laughs> three o'clock. Um, oh, no. I think was part of where I knew the jig was up. And, and I, I'm the kind of alcoholic, I, you know, I still had a house and I still had some sort of career and I had my wife and three kids and two cars in the, the driveway kind of thing, but I'd lost everything in here. Mm. I had lost all the self-respect, right? The, I got sick and tired of being sick and tired. <laughs> so true. So and, true. Uh, that, that, and an extraordinary person who. Can I continue kind of into how I got sober? I know you asked. I'm I'm still trying to answer the question when I have my first drink. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. It's beautifully flowing. Oh no, no, brother. I mean, that is that is so beautiful the way you describe your journey. Because you were a high-functioning alcoholic, but very early on, you, through a mixture of genes and our environment, um, you were very much, and uh, not just the environment, environment, I should say, the marketing that already was out there, the, and the general acceptance uh, within the population. We were bound, we were, we were set up to fail. Yes, um, completely. Exactly. <laughs> And 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 it this was a time when men like you and me were going out there. We were leaving a stamp on the on the world, wanting to spread our wings, uh, being successful, working, working, working. That defined us. Work, 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 work. And then after a while, after sixteen hours, guess what? Your body is saying, "Oh, fuck off! I don't want anymore." Um, and then certainly for me. Alcohol, you called the first rocket fuel. Hell, that was exactly what it was. Give me two glasses of wine. The first glass of wine goes, ah, ah. that's that literally that sound effect came with the first glass. The second glass of wine was ping. Okay, let's keep working. Let's do things. And yeah, it, so, so I had that period, but towards the end, you yeah. know, it was more like, mm. you know, the six pack to. Yeah. You know, the first one is like, okay, we just, you know. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Maybe my words should be taken a little bit more with artistic license. Maybe the first bottle of wine. And yeah, then the second okay, bottle. That, now, all right, that, that. Now I we're think, talking. Now I, can, now I can go for that. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I should I should not kid around. That was me at the end too. <laughs> what was your limit? Uh, I mean, how, when did you pass out? What was sort of, how? which amounts? So my, my kind of modus operandi would be to start like at that four or five and then go until it was time to go to bed so it's kind of get to a certain level of inebriation and then yeah. again there's kind of this self like it's a high performing individual it's like you know being out of control or slurring my words or falling down and stumbling like that's too drunk yeah. so i mean i would sometimes go over right and get there but it was about just controlling you know getting to a certain level of inebriation and then kind of maintaining that till i passed out hmm. so that was so, that was kind of the way that that i operate that wasn't the kind of that was the way that i mostly operated interesting um i was harder going because certainly in at many times in my life 
I drank to escape my reality and I drank to escape my pain. I drank to escape the monsters under my bed and inside my head. Um, and for that, I needed more. Um, mm -hmm. I was slurring my words. Yes, please. You probably would have not understand a word. Um, so, and that is what I needed. So what happened when there were hard times in your life? You were you were pointing towards the anxiety and the the being early on thrown yeah. into the limelight. Um, there, not everything would have been smooth out there. There would have been lots of not so nice times. There's there's bumps in the road, but I really have been very blessed, like not right. having really huge bumps in the road. And you know, like my my family of origin, my father only passed away. You know. A, couple of years ago at like 93 my mom uh, this past week celebrated her 95th birthday and i try oh. and make sure to see her a couple times a year and Beautiful. talk to her you know every 10 days or two yeah. weeks yeah um so you know and i and yes i definitely drank um to you know overcome some of those things that i didn't like in the business mm. um but i think a lot of it was just to keep going and then you know like my principal three fears after having done a lot of personal growth work, have you know, having got sober, mm. is uh, I'm not good enough. And <laughs> Shit, as an yeah. entrepreneur and running a business like that, so that yeah. one is very present. Yeah. Um, it's my fault. It's kind uh -huh. of, you know, uh, that other fear is like someone's going to say it's your fault. So over, like I'm a hugely over responsible person, uh, right? Take take too much responsibility. So when you're over responsible, you can't like you don't want to get too drunk, because then you can't be responsible. Like so it's it's got this tug of war going on. And then the third one is who do you think you are? Like, who do you think you are to deserve a great life? Who do you think you are, you know, to, um, you know, the first holiday I took in, you know, I did some therapy work. And you know, I, I came to realize, well, I'm principally an extra, extrovert. I really need some, and I isolated as drinking. So I have to be careful about isolating. But truthfully, I need some time just by myself to mm -hmm. recuperate, build mm -hmm. my resiliency. So like the first time I went up to Whistler, a local ski resort in the summertime, like and did six days by myself, and basically uh -huh. insisted with my wife that I was going to go by myself. Like, that was a big step to move out of codependency and that th that whole your who do you think you are who do you think you are to have like six days totally by yourself without your spouse without your children without <laughs> you know anyone else like that one is still work sometimes uh, oh that's it <laughs> but that there too uh who do you think you are one is the aim to order the, the focus on being selfish the other one is who do you think you are to do that like in my case the imposter syndrome mm -hmm. who am i to actually sit here have a show and talk mm -hmm. to people who you bloody little little you know and there's this voice going thousand miles an hour and you just think it and it's it's weird it it's still so much working in the underground and it's trying to sabotage me and from now and then i really have to stop i have to look on my shoulder and say hey look Okay, 
Um, look, this is my 325th show now. I, I think I've established myself. Yeah. What do you think? You, yeah, th- exactly. you, think, you're, you think you're maybe doing okay? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, come on. There's a little voice on. going, no, 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 that's not enough. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I know that voice so well. <laughs> <laughs> not now that I've ever heard that voice <laughs> in my head. <laughs> oh, no, 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 never. Yeah, right. You're right. It's, but that is, that is what we need to accept because most people don't, are not even aware that these voices are there they are just being they're they're slaves to these core mm. beliefs that are often so warped and so out of this world your failure absolutely my god i accumulated little letters behind my name title after title after freaking title i made a point of of doing a, a publication every six months in my field and it was just oh it was never enough was and, never yeah enough. i was just gonna say and that's not enough you, I was considering myself a failure, and I think that is my my worst core belief. It's still there today. It's still, um, it's still my my go to, and I'm enough. What fifty six for crying out yeah. loud? I've got another fifty years to go, so I'm working on this core still belief. Working on that, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I don't know what I, who I want to be when I grow up, but I, I'm I'd working. say on the pro- on the professional side, I didn't have a lot of trouble with imposter syndrome, and I didn't right. have a lot of um, of uh, you know feeling like a failure. So it, it was more in the deserving side. Interesting. Um, and then, you know, again, in sobriety and personal growth work, you know, one of the things that it's really taken a lot of work is, is to, you know, people would tell me they loved our products and that mm-hmm. we were a great company, but to really accept it and let it into my heart, mm-hmm. to like compliments, mm-hmm. like land and come in, um, I'm way, way better at that. But it's, <laughs> it's like, again, I think that's mostly the I'm not good enough fear. It's like, if I really take that in, then, well, maybe I am good enough. And what now? <laughs> okay, okay. I like that, that, that take on things, because it's the feeling of inadequacy that that makes us strive that makes us move forward. Mm. So absolutely, mm. absolutely. So I often take anger or failure as an Sorry, I often take anger that comes from my failures, rightly or wrongly. So, however, however I perceive the situation, let's say, um, yeah, however I perceive it, if it was a failure or not, I probably think it was. Um, but that anger that comes from there, that frustration, I take as as a power to move forward, mm. to refocus, mm. uh, to a certain degree. Nowadays, I love to make mistakes because I learn so much from them. Um, so whilst I love to win, <laughs> um, <laughs> is, I, I also nowadays appreciate the lessons I learn when I don't win. I actually love them a lot. Uh, but emotionally, of course, I still they still confirm, see, you're a failure. You can't yeah, even get I- that right. My former coach, Kevin Lawrence, did a lot of coaching with me. Everything in life's an experiment. Mm. Mm. There, there is no failure is just uh, that's just a perspective. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. Right. Yeah. And and you just, you know, you try something. If if you go in mm. just treating it as an experiment, then, you know, whatever happens, you learn something. Touché. Now, what we get attached to is that we run an experiment and then we get very attached to the outcome that we're certain is going to happen. 
<laughs> and that's where we trip ourselves up really badly because mm. we're now not attached to the experiment. We're attached <laughs> to a future outcome we're convinced is going to happen. Sure. So sure, sure, sure. Uh, that that's that's a really important distinction. I, I do a lot of coaching with entrepreneurs around trying to treat more of what they're doing as an experiment. Like, like a, you know, like, a, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Why don't you go try it? And then, but don't be attached to what happens. Just go try it and and then let the facts tell you, um, you know, what happened rather than you being emotionally attached to what you think the facts are going to be. Um, and and Kevin, too, um, talks about facing the brutal facts, which is like, a. I think that if an entrepreneur faces the brutal facts, you can always find a way through them. Mm. The problem is when you're not facing up to whatever the brutal <clears throat> fact is. And I want to come back to Kevin because we kind of did, you know, some what led to my drinking. We've talked a little bit about, you know, some of the things I've learned in recovery and through personal growth work. But we need the in-between part, which is, you know, um, what it was like, what happened hmm. um, and what it's like now. So I want to tell you a little bit about what happened. So in uh, 2007, I was at a, a training event. Uh, with a uh, um, guy by the name of Vern Harnish, who has a business framework that I, I think is one of the best in the world. And anyways, in the back of the room, we were a couple of coaches. And at that point, I had uh, I'd gone off sailing for two years with with our family. We lived on a sailboat in the Mediterranean for two years and homeschooled our three kids uh, while sailing uh, 5,000 miles, 10,000 kilometers in the Mediterranean. Uh, and I came back. Um, you know, I'd been with the business for 20 years. I'd sold out. I wasn't done for life. And now I was ready to like find some engaging things that, you know, professionally mm -hmm. and I wasn't finding them. And uh, so I, I went to the back room and talked to these coaches and one of them made me more uncomfortable than I had been in a number of years. In fact, I had tears in the corner of my eyes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think his, all he did was he take his hand and he kind of went around. There's probably a hundred entrepreneurs in the room. And he said, well, I bet almost everyone in this room needs your help. And I thought maybe that's true. That's probably true, but I don't, no one wants my help because I'd been trying for at that point, three, four years to find entrepreneurs to help. So um, anyways, he gave me his card and I stared at his card and the telephone was way, way, way too heavy to pick up. <laughs> Call Kevin. Uh, uh, but thankfully he saw something that day and he called me a few weeks later. And then he said, do you remember who I am? And I said, oh yeah, I remember who you are. Your card's sitting right here. And, and, you know, the universe put Kevin in my path to get sober is what I believe. And so on my 50th birthday, August 9th, 2007, we had our first coaching session together. And when you go have Kevin as your coach, your first two coaching sessions are two eight hour days in a row. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you don't go with Kevin unless you're all in. Oh, wow. I like that. And That's... Kevin and I started working together and we worked together for 18 months until January 26, 2009, about 1030 at night. I had my last beer and I sent an email message to Kevin on the topic for our coaching session the next day. And I said, I want to talk to you about my drinking. And the next day we had a coaching call. And no way was I like willing to admit I was an alcoholic, but I was admitting he was the first person I admitted I had a drinking problem to. Brilliant. And, 
you know, we I'd engendered enough trust with Kevin and we had the kind of relationship. I, I knew that once I admitted it to him that he was never going to ever let me off the hook. Like uh, it just, I, I, I knew deep down that Kevin was not going to let me off the hook. And yeah. coincidentally, uh, like Kevin is a summer place in Washington state, just south of where we live here in British Columbia. And, um, you know, it's kind of a communal thing and, you know, there's common campfires and he sat around the campfire a lot of summer nights talking to someone that had decades of experience in AA. So when I told Kevin I had a drinking problem, of which he had no idea, right? Because anytime I was in a call, I, you know, I, it was not a time of day I drank. So, and I'm a high performing alcoholic. So anything that Kevin got me to do, I did. Um, and anyways, he got me to commit to go to an AA meeting by the end of that week. That was a Tuesday. And he got me to go, he got me to commit to go to an AA meeting before the end of the week. Mm. And then being the overachiever, all in or all out guy that I am, I, I had an event downtown with the tech industry that ran to about eight o'clock. So I went online that afternoon and I looked up AA meetings and lo and behold, there was a meeting at 830 at a... Uh, Legion, which was literally a quarter of a less than a hundred meters off the road, I was going to drive home on. Like I was going to practically drive by it, and so I left. Uh, I left even a little early for my event downtown, and I probably showed up at the meeting just a little bit after eight. And uh, it's in a Legion. Legions are um, are were originally founded to serve uh, people who served in the military, but and. So for your listeners, like they're a bar. They're... So I walked into this meeting and the doors were open and there was a whole set of tables and there were beers on a bunch of them. And I literally was like a deer in the headlights. I'm like, I'm not even 24 hours sober. I'm standing there. And then three people went by and, you know, they were going to the meeting and they have that sixth sense that people in 12-step recovery have. So they said, oh, if you want the meeting, go down the hall and up the stairs. And uh, thankfully, I turned right and I went down the hall and I went up the stairs. And uh, I uh, went to my first meeting and uh, towards the end of the meeting, the chairperson asked, is there anyone new who would like to stand up and introduce themselves? Mm -hmm. And um, fortunately, the chairperson waited quite a while, probably 20 or 30 seconds. Okay. And I'm sitting on my hands. <laughs> and then finally, you know, I kind of jumped up and said, I'm David and I'm an alcoholic. And I, I think that was probably a breakthrough moment because it was the first time I'd said that word and, you know, admitted it even to myself. And I made that my home group. It's still my home group uh, 13 years, nine months and some odd days <laughs> later. <laughs> Although we, since COVID, we haven't been able to meet in the Legion. So we, sure. we meet somewhere else now. But then um, um, I was there this week. In fact, I'm currently secretary of that group. So. Um, uh, that's but you know uh so when i you know when i say you know a i got sick and tired of being sick and tired and then you know i think the universe put kevin and his skills and his knowledge in my path mm -hmm. so that um you know i had an opportunity to get sober and uh you know i won't say it was easy Right. But fairly early on, I, I lost most of the craving and then, you know, did things like make sure there was no beer in the house. And my wife was still drinking wine. But early on, I said to her that, like, I was not going to open a bottle. I wasn't going to touch a bottle. I wasn't going to buy a bottle. Mm -hmm. I have not gone into a liquor store since the day I got sober. 
Hmm. Not once. Like it's one of my boundaries. I do not go into a liquor store. I do not buy liquor. Hmm. That all sounds like this beautiful transformation that every alcoholic secretly yearns for. However, there is the alcohol serves a need. For me, it was to to dull the pain. Um, for you, it was a whole a range of things. How did you uh, exchange those, the alcohol? What did you do to have your needs filled? I think early on was lots of meetings. Like, so uh, lots of meetings, what was it doing, 2009? Um, and I, I was between gigs at that time, so I wasn't working. So, you know, I had time to mm. do a little bit of reading in the big book and, nice. and nice. Uh, you know, uh, consider it. And, and, you know, and I got Kevin in the background helping me make sure that I'm, like, doing the right things. And, mm. you know, I mean, I still exercised at like six o'clock in the morning, even when I was supremely hungover. I, I literally do not know how I did that. I do not know how I did that. Oh, boy. Um, and there were also some financial messes that I'd basically been working with Kevin to clean up for kind of 18 months. So, um, you know, we continued in that path and it had quite a bit of emotional uh, stuff with it, shall we say, like we need to sell our yeah. big expensive house on a hill and downsize yeah. to um, a more modest, not a lot more modest, mm -hmm. just a little bit more modest, but mm -hmm. um, it radically changed our financial situation. Wow. Um, and, uh, but you know, there, you know, we sold, I sold my boat, we sold our recreational property up in the mountains and we sold our house in a mm -hmm. nine month period. Wow. Normally talk about huge stresses in your life. The only thing that you didn't do is change your relationship and yes. immigrate to a new country. Otherwise, you did it all there. So and that would have happened if we weren't so codependent, <laughs> I think, in, in, in some ways. And we need to talk about that because it takes two to tango. Um, yes. So what was your wife's relationship with alcohol? Uh, her relationship has always been like she likes her wine, but mm. not every day. And, you know, she... She's the kind of person who can, you know, go halfway through a second glass of wine and kind of go, oh, I'm feeling tipsy and just leave the rest. Drives me crazy. Of course, when I was drinking, it's like, oh, good. More yeah, <laughs> exactly. That is, you know, there are recipes for leftover wine and they always confused me. I didn't know what was leftover what, what wine. What was leftover wine? <laughs> you know, that's right. This didn't exist in my house. Yeah, early in our relationship, <laughs> we we did a trip to France and we visited with a friend of ours in 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 France, um, who's a professional friend, but we we got to stay in their their house and she was shocked when uh, Pierre put the cork back in the bottle. She said, "You can do that?" <laughs> So good, exactly. Same and that was thing. probably like in my mid twenties. So no, you know, right. Adana, I'm I'm already demonstrating pretty strong. I, I don't know if I'm a full blown alcoholic or not, but I'm certainly demonstrating alcoholic behaviors. Well, we can do a quick test now. Um, did you feel that you had to cut down at that time in your drinking? Uh, no, I would no. say not. Were you angry when people were talking about your drinking, that you were drinking too much? I saw high performing that no one ever questioned my drinking. 
Did you feel so guilty? I didn't, so, Did you feel um, guilty about your drinking? Probably not. Interesting. Did you need an eye opener? Did you drink some alcohol in the morning? No, I never really needed an eye opener. See, interesting. So these are the typical screening questions, yes, the cage questions agreed. that we doctors would ask to gauge is someone uh, suffering from an alcohol use disorder. In other words, yeah. being alcoholic. I, I remember like in the late nineties going to my family doctor and there was a pamphlet, you know, by the uh, receptionist desk yeah. with like 20 questions around alcoholism. And, you know, I answered 17 yes out of 20 at that point. And then, you know, it said if you answered four more, you should speak to your doctor. And I was like, oh, this fucking thing. They don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's well, that's and, and and also I probably, you know, among my social circle. Huh. I, you know, and I'm a sailor, so like talk about drinking, of course. you know, among sailors, I probably could identify 20 people could have answered 17 of those questions. Yes. <sighs> and so course. again, just totally normalized like this. Doesn't everybody do this? Like, isn't but this how you live your life? But that's how we are. We surround ourselves with like-minded people. So therefore, uh, you can hand on your heart saying, me, Abinago? No. Joe over there? No, he is an alcoholic. Look at him. Um, but you yourself, complete denial. And that is 95% of alcoholics will tell you, hey, there's nothing wrong with me. Hey, they will They will have this, this degree of denial there. And that's so yeah, hard. It, it takes time and it often takes the slippery slope and it takes maybe uh, a DUI or maybe uh, hitting your wife or whatever it is. Whatever to, it is. Exactly. To finally for you to get the message. And yeah, and, and so if I can bring it around like to entrepreneurs specifically business yeah, owners. Yeah. So a couple things is if you're an alcoholic, there is, you know, a relatively strong probability you're going to hire people who maybe aren't full-blown alcoholics but definitely like to drink and you know mm -hmm. you're the kind of ceo who has the friday you know beer get together mm -hmm. um so mm -hmm. there that's like kind of one aspect and it's like if you do get sober like what now like because you're not going to drink beer on friday with everybody so mm -hmm. that that's figuring that piece out is one kind of issue and i had a non-alcoholic ceo of mine a little while ago um, who's in super high end, like they have an industrial product. So it's, it requires, you know, you're talking to very senior people and, you know, you just have such, he said, you know, we went out to dinner with the sales prospect with our top salesperson and they needed me there as the CEO to create belief. And, you know, everybody had two drinks before dinner and we averaged one bottle of wine per person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And then a few people had drinks after dinner. And is this normal? And I said, well, it's really normal for alcoholics. <laughs> and unfortunately, there is um, a really, really strong alcoholic culture in this kind of high-end sales, um, uh, high-end performance. I have another former client of mine who works for one of the largest tech companies in Canada. And again, like you go out to these dinners with 12, 14 people and mm -hmm. And even when, and and it's kind of a boss is a boss is sitting across from you and he says, no, I'm, I don't want any wine. And then the person keeps filling his glass, but he, you know, it's like, uh, it's very difficult to say no to that person because, you know, it's your boss's boss. Like, um, and what's interesting is that he's, you know, as he's fairly new in sobriety, you got a couple of years is 
as he's had some of his deers and shared those in our coaching sessions and kind of ways he can deal with it and ways he can get better. But it's really interesting when he's really stood up for himself, uh, he's had other people come to him afterwards and say, thank Absolutely. you for doing that because it let me feel okay not having drink and I Absolutely. did not want to want to drink. So, you know, that was the flip side. But again, when when you're an entrepreneur and that is the culture of the business you've created and how you sell things, where you go to trade shows and you go hang out with a bunch of people drinking, that's that's the thing to do. Um, I help them navigate that and, uh, you know, things that you can do and strategies that you can have uh, so that you can still be there, but you can protect yourself. Exactly. Right. That's beautiful. That's that's where and you you're you're spelling it out. You need a coach in those things. It is the same thing as if you're now in your mid fifties and you say, Hey, you know what? I want to start a new sport. I have no clue how to do that a sport. So you wouldn't just go out there, buy something and just start doing that sport and then injure yourself on your first training session. Yeah, you would probably ask someone, hey, how do you do those moves in the gym or whatever it is? You or if you, go, if you take up skiing late in life, oh. like not as a teenager, which mm -hmm. I know people who have. Yeah, like, you know, if you're smart, you go take ski lessons. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you, and, and you get over your ego saying, oh, no, no, you should know like how to ski on the first time. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. Bullshit. <laughs> Even my children who started skiing when they were three, they didn't know how to ski their first time. Let uh. me tell you. Exactly. They fell over a hell of a lot more than they stood up on the skis. <laughs> and well, a fair call. They are they are a little bit lower to the ground, so they it, don't care as it much. Hurts, it hurts a lot less. <laughs> it hurts a lot, lot My less. My point. <laughs> when you do that when you're 55, uh, yeah. <laughs> My kids are now 33, 31, and 26. And uh, even they are starting to say when they have a wipeout that they're starting to feel it. <laughs> <laughs> to share. early 20s like no way they're just like to share. but i, I want to come back to something that you've just said um about that experience of one of your mentees um who went out there to actually open up about his own journey with alcohol um that others come to that uh, to him and say, "Wow, I thank you." This mm -hmm. is this is so much more common what you are saying than than others would believe because there's always the shame and guilt. These evil twins that write you and oh my God, could I say that I'm an alcoholic? No. What will the other people think around me? Well, guess what? They know. <laughs> my, my mentor um he was very big in finance and he was an entrepreneur extraordinaire but he was a drinker to the extreme uh, but he had his 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 contracts were so ironclad that the people that were in business with him couldn't get out and then when he got sober People said, oh, God, I'm so glad because the only reason we are still with you is because we couldn't get out of your contract. We knew mm. you were an absolute bloody alcoholic. And he thought, no, no, I've hidden that well. Yeah, no, you don't hide it well. Um, that is the well, reality. Well, there's exceptions to that. But, well, I, I would debate that because you and I can now smell a bullshitter a mile yeah. away. <laughs> but I, among our social group and a lot of our yeah. friends, none yeah. of them suspected I was an alcoholic. Oh, really? You were such a such a chameleon. Yeah, such a chameleon and so good at, again, that, like, just get it to that certain level. Uh, and uh, I was uh, super expert at hiding, like, uh, really, like, oh, please, please, you know. Are. And and uh, I'm sure you're the same. And 
you know, but to more to this point, you know, I I see myself at this current present moment as really two really big missions around alcoholism. So one is I've broken my anonymity and come out because I want to reduce the stigma. Good. Like I want to say it's okay. And I want to offer hope. There is always hope. Absolutely. Um, and and those are really my two primary missions and why I come on shows like yours. Um, I mean, to share our, the broader message, but if people leave and they only go away with two things, it, it's like admitting, you know, al alcohol is absolutely prevalent in our society and it's mm -hmm. one of the most dangerous drugs in the entire world. Mm -hmm. And we don't treat it that way. And there is no shame in being an alcoholic. It is no moral failure to be an alcoholic. It is, it is a mental health disease. I have a meant it it could it is formally diagnosed. Mm. And and anyone I believe can get so and stay can get and stay sober. There there is hope. I hundred percent agree. Wow. David, you are a force of nature there. Um, I love it uh, because you are so focused. Uh, you have taken on, for example, you've taken on the flow of this interview really beautifully. And you've weaved a red thread through our discussion. That was superb. I did not do need to do very much here. This was thank you. You did my work. But it shows, it shows how you think. It shows how you function. You find the core of the problem and you're dealing with it. You're doing you're doing the due diligence that you do as an entrepreneur, as a as a, an investor with a business. You have done. You've learned to do that with people. You've learned to mm -hmm. see what what actually makes them tick and why we escape into to alcohol or why we use alcohol for the reasons that we do, and that is so powerful. And I could not agree more with you. The past does not equal the future. It is so important. Whatever has happened to you up until this moment, it doesn't matter. Yes, it, it. there are many mental scars, and maybe there might be quite some physical scars there as well, but that trauma does not define you. That right. trauma is the power that is pushing your bow back. You are you are now at a point, the sheer fact that you're listening to this podcast, to this video. Indeed. You are here already. The, the, the tension in your body is already there. You are ready to release that power. And now it's just a question, where do you aim that bow? Where do you aim that arrow? Because you are ready. You're ready to take action. And that is the, 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 the key thing in recovery. It's not just sitting back, um, maybe I should. No, it is taking action. It is getting up in the morning, having a shower, brush your teeth. It is doing little bits, little steps, tiny, teensy baby mm -hmm. steps, but they're little baby steps in the right direction. And that is how you get momentum in a new life. But you just, it's hard for you to see that. Too many of us stick in that, uh, are stuck in that hell of, uh, there is no hope. I have deserved that. Whoever would understand what I have done. These are all lies that alcoholism tells you, that your depression tells you, PTSD tells you. That's bullshit. Guys, you can, and, and I say guys, no, guys, girls, anything in yeah, between, and, 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 I don't yeah, care. And, you know, go and, out another, there. Another thing that's kind of, you know, 
common knowledge, right, is that, you know, not that many women are alcoholics. Well, you know, the data is it's about 60, 40 mm. men to women in the research that I've looked at, mm. right? It's, and I know lots of recovering women, uh, yes. uh, alcoholics. And, uh, you know, yes. back to Coach Kevin, you know, I, I don't know what got me. Well, I think, again, I just got sick and tired of being sick and tired, and I just didn't want to do it anymore. Mm. Um, but also just the fact that he engendered that trust mm. so that I could open up to him. Mm. Um, it's also why, like, seven years ago, I decided to, you know, stop being a senior executive and entrepreneur and move into coaching because I wanted to give to others what Kevin gave to me. That gift of being able to listen, to be able to share, you know, to take those scars and show you how you can build mm. on those mm. um, to create an extraordinary life that you deserve an extraordinary life mm. and that you're fully capable of it even if it's really hard to see from where you are right in this moment. Absolutely. David, if people like to like the message that you are sharing here and like your attitude and aptitude, um, where can they find you? Uh, easiest is my website, uh, coachdjgreer.com. So my full name is David James Greer. So it's coach D as in David, J as in James Greer.com. Mm -hmm. and uh, my phone number and my email address are right there on the homepage. Um, so um, feel free to reach out. Uh, I'm also active on social media. You can reach out to me that way. Um, but uh, yeah. Um, Guys, check out the description of the YouTube video and of the podcast because all his links are down there. Whilst you're down there, press the like and subscribe button uh, because uh, David has certainly opened my eyes and despite the fact that that not just because we are both so long in recovery uh, sometimes to go back to the basics go back to what really has happened to us compare reflect uh, you look at the same old story in a new light so therefore I will go away from this interview thinking huh okay and maybe some new revelation. Well, well, there has already a few revelations <laughs> during this interview here um, will be there. So I grow and I'm so grateful for having the opportunity for, for creating the privilege to talk to people like David. Um, I take active steps to change my future and in turn change the future of those around me like you guys out there listening to us. So why don't you go out there and try to do the same tiny little steps take action if you have never been to a meeting throw the prejudices away and, and try to figure out is there is there a meeting somewhere uh, physically close to you if not who cares it's the world of zoom you can find exactly. any go to an online one. <laughs> absolutely there is no excuse and take it as an experiment as well and uh, just one thing, one thing I would like to add, uh, you had obviously from the very first moment, you had a very positive uh, experience in the AA, you jumped mm -hmm. with your group. And um, it's interesting, there was not a single time that you mentioned the word God. Um, often enough, um, people are not very religious and somehow they believe that AA is a very church-driven kind of thing. 
the reality is that often we we meet in churches because that's where you can get a cheap room to meet. Um, so that's really the reason. Um, many groups um, are secular, um, and the word God. Um, for many of us who do not believe, God can be a group of orderly drunks, a group of druggies, okay? <laughs> so you don't have to be a Christian to uh, approach AA or a similar 12-step program. There's, the 12-step program is a business model, really, um, how to, to help a failing business. And I've, I've written that here, My Steps to Sobriety. Check it out there. Uh, I've described it exactly as that. So, therefore... So, and like I'll share, like I I was a little put off by that uh, word. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in, in AA, we have this, we read part of this book in a chapter called how it works and towards the end of that it says uh, the chapter to the agnostic and so uh, you know I, I eventually read that and then also there's there's a, an appendix that talks about a spiritual awakening mm -hmm. and how it happens gradually mm -hmm. and you know today mm -hmm. the letters g-o-d for me um, mean a power that's something that's bigger than me which I manifest or imagine, mm. you know, is the universe or the life force of the universe. Mm. Like it's bigger. I don't really understand it and I don't have to. In fact, if I understand it, it's probably not the right thing. Uh, um, and yeah. and my experience was very much that um, you talked about taking little steps. And I just kept taking little steps. And then one day I realized that, you know, I was living a much more spiritual life. Beautiful. And, Beautiful. and, um, yeah, and, and that's what I focus on today. Beautiful. So, yeah, it does not matter in which deity you believe, or if there's no deity at all. Or any, yes. Yeah, exactly. So don't get spooked about it. Um, and just look at what is behind it between you and me and shh, don't tell anyone, but in reality, the founder of, um, of AA was actually not religious. But it was all done in the 1930s, and uh, he thought, well, really, how can we sell that? And at that time, God was selling, um, and that is that sounds like sacrilege to many to many uh, people in the AA. But in reality, there are letters from his wife who actually confirmed that. Um, so there you go. So don't get hung up and, on the on the Christian and, side. And in that chapter about to the agnostic, um, I think there's 39 different ways that a power greater than yourself is referred to. <laughs> Beautiful. I need to read the chapter again. Because <laughs> I, I, in one pass of doing the steps, uh, the yes. facilitator and I decided we'd count. <laughs> we read that chapter. Oh, excellent. So we did. Excellent. <laughs> Perfect. So there you go, guys. No excuse. No excuse not to take the first step. Okay. And if still AA or 12-step programs is not that, then there are other more scientifically based, uh, based schemes out there. Heaps and heaps and heaps. Guys, go back in my show. I have had um I've had guests from virtually every every nook and granny of the recovery world uh there it is help is out there it is not just possible but likely highly likely that you will change your life given the right direction and the right support you can't and do I it know, alone yeah i was just gonna say and what i know for me is that i there's no way i could do it alone absolutely and i'm not certain anyone can recover from alcoholism alone. exactly it it's 
it's the nature of the disease. Exactly. David, what a fantastic interview. I truly, truly enjoyed that. You're an amazing Thank you man. So much. No, absolutely. So guys, uh, if you haven't gotten something out of this interview, then really you need your head screwed off back, <laughs> rattled and screwed back on. Because this was gold. Okay, guys. So, David, thank you very much. Look after yourself. And you guys out there, live with passion. Bye. I never give up. I never give up. I never give up. Turn around.